Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Uh, every day I, I begin my day by reading it. 
Um, because I think it is, it is very possibly the, the most incredible work ever written. The, I, I believe the first chapter of John is the greatest artistic work ever written. Maybe some of you guys like, you know, other works, War and Peace or something like that. But I think it's the first chapter of John. And when you read this, it's really clear. John actually is starting over by redefining what Genesis says. Genesis starts with what? In the beginning. What does John say? In the beginning. One of these days, um, whenever we have a lot more time and, and you guys, you know, didn't go crazy with worship or like any of that kind of stuff, we'll spend like a whole time just talking about the, the Gospel of John. It's the last one written. It's the only, it's the non-synoptic gospel. What that means is Matthew, Mark, and Luke correspond and lay over one another perfectly. John does not. It's not written in chronological order. John had no interest in that. Um, so the Johannian gospel that he penned is really interesting because it was also the only gospel that was at the request of the church fathers. They went to John, who was an old man, and said, look at these other manuscripts that we have and see if there's anything missing. So without John, we wouldn't have the story of Nicodemus. You remember where he says that a man has to be born of water and spirit. He has to enter into his mother. And Nicodemus says, how do you enter into his mother's womb? We wouldn't have John. We wouldn't have everything we have in John 3 without John. We wouldn't have the fishermen coming to Jesus. We wouldn't have the running of the well without John. We wouldn't have the wedding of Cana without John. I mean, it's all striking to think about. And so John, at the end of his life, is writing this, and he starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and he's trying to fax Jesus. It's not the Bible. It's never been the Bible. It's John. In the beginning was the Word. And I think it's really interesting. I heard one time, an, an exercise that uh, one of the early church fathers used to do uh, with his uh, his disciples or his students is he would um, look through this and he would actually have them go and in John 1, 1 through 18, he would have them every time it says John, keep in mind in this, it's talking about John the Baptist, right? That was the forerunner of Christ. Every time it mentions John, he told them to replace it with the Bible. Because what the chapter is saying is that there was a, uh, let, let's say, um, I apologize, I really messed these verses up, but whatever, it's true. Um, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness and testify according to the light, which is Jesus. So if you read it this way, there was a book sent from God whose name was the Bible, but it was sent to testify of Jesus. See, when we do that, it changes the way we view the Trinity. Because I grew up that the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And what Jesus came to show us was exactly what God looked like. And so within that, the point of the exercise was to remind them that the best way to read the Bible was with what's called a Christocentric lens. The lens of Christ. So then... Do you realize that when Paul wrote everything he wrote about uh, Jesus in the New Testament, in his epistles, everything he wrote about Jesus, he pulled out of the Old Testament? That's weird. And in fact, if you really want to get down to it, most um, New Testament scholars would say that they took some extreme liberties, extreme liberties, cramming Jesus into the Old Testament. Why? Because they were punch drunk with the love of Jesus. They were just overwhelmed with how awesome Jesus was. So they, were, they would look at the Psalms and they would read things about David saying, uh, when, when my life, when I was dragged down into the pit and my life was given over, you don't abandon me. And they would say, that's Jesus. And, and you're reading and you're like, no, that's David talking about how Saul was trying to kill him. But he was in the grips of, the, uh, of Saul and yet God redeemed him. And they're like, nope, that's Jesus. Why? Because the way you look at the Bible should always be through the lens of Jesus. And they just found him everywhere. Paul did this. If you remember, uh, this is not on the screen. So, uh, 
if you remember this, uh, there's this story in the Old Testament about the rock with Moses. Remember that story? So the rock with Moses, Moses went out and he struck the rock with his rod. Water came forth out of the rock. Then God told him to speak to the rock and he struck it a second time, that whole business. So interestingly enough, um, they wanted something to drink and he struck the rock and water came out of it. There was actually Jewish teaching, non-biblical, okay? This is not in the Bible anywhere, but there was Jewish teaching that was more like um, stories they would tell you to kind of, I'm going to use the word myth and don't freak out, um, but but stories they tell each other. And so myth and everybody, you know, that kind of weird stuff. They picture, you know, Mickey Mouse with that huge hazel hat on and he's running around going, so when, when they told this story, what they actually said was that the rock, after it was struck by Moses, that the rock came alive and swallowed them through the wilderness. And they said that when the people of Israel would stop to camp, that the rock would come, would roll into camp. Now you can't read this, it roll into camp. And that they would surround the rock and begin to sing and sing the whole way. And the rock would begin to burst forth with water. Keeping in mind they were walking in the desert, they had no water. So literally the rock became their moving, portable well. This is what was taught by the Jewish leaders. They would teach this stuff. It's not in the Bible, but they would talk about it. So then here along comes Paul. Paul then, we don't have time for you to be funny Google wandering this sermon. Okay, so Paul comes along and in 1 Corinthians 10 begins to talk about this. And he starts to use allegory to define the Old Testament. And he says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant of how our fathers all passed through the cloud and, and passed through the Red Sea, and they were baptized there. So he's already using allegory. Were they literally being baptized as they walked through the Red Sea? No. You get it, though, right? You realize that nobody, like, dipped them. They didn't bring a trough up and dip anybody and say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and somebody gave a testimony. Oh, God wanted to come and dip my whole life. You know, that kind of thing. That didn't happen. They just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. But in the midst of that, Paul says they were being baptized. That's allegory. Then he says, we all ate and, and um, excuse me, did eat the same spiritual meat, which was manna. He's talking about communion. That's allegory. It's not literal. They weren't taking communion. They didn't have the Eucharist table. And set it up and, you know, somebody, well, dang it, we're out of Welsh soup. You know, what are we going to do? No, that's not what happened. You know, the next thing he says, and we did all drink from the same spiritual rock. Were they get drunk out of the spiritual rock that followed them through the wilderness? And the rock was Christ. So he quotes from something that's not even in the Bible. of things that aren't just flat out in the scripture. He uses something that they all would have understood. He uses something that was very commonly known in their culture and says, yeah, remember that rock that we always talk about following the children of Israel like a portable well? That was Jesus. Do you realize how crazy that is? Crazy? So when you look at this, Jesus made it really clear. One of these days I'm going to give you a full blown clear again in John 16 that there are many things he wanted to tell them, but they couldn't bear it right then. He also goes out of his way to correct the Bible. Let me say it again. Jesus went out of his way to correct the Bible. You've heard it said, but I say to you this. Why? Because what Jesus was saying is he doesn't, he didn't say, the Bible says this, but I say this. He says, you've heard it said. Why? Let me be really clear. The Bible doesn't say anything. 
oldest son, the Bible reads, he wanted to learn. Because as soon as we want to defend our point, we say, well, the Bible says X, Y, Z. But the Bible doesn't say, the Bible reads. And how many times through history has the Bible read a certain way for the sake of a certain stance, many of which were malicious, many of which were heinous, many of which were disgusting in the sight of God? And so what happens is Jesus would regularly say, you've heard it said this, but what I'm saying is this. Jesus would do that kind of thing. Why? Because there were many things that were repugnant that they couldn't bear at all. So then he went further, and he actually says, I want to adjust the way you read the text. I'm not saying throw the text away. Jesus didn't say throw the text away. I'm not asking you to pull out Genesis through Malachi. But what I'm saying is, let's read it together. And let's find him in it. That's what Jesus did. Yet, for the Protestants, specifically the evangelical church, the Bible became our linchpin. Sola Scriptura. Scriptura, if that's the Latin. Sola Scriptura is what Martin Luther came up with. Means At the end of the day, the most important thing is the Bible. That has to be our measuring stick. It was our linchpin. You clung to it for dear life, like a life raft in the middle of the Atlantic. All I've got is the Bible. And what Jesus actually said is... Not that everything had to match up with Scripture. In fact, our Bible, many times, our, our bylaws even, says things like the Bible is the final authority on who God is and what God can do. That's what many of our Christian bylaws actually say. Jesus was really clear on this. He actually said, I'm going to send you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and it's going to lead you into all truth. Not, there's going to be a Bible. It's going to be a book compiled, and it's going to have holy written on the front of it with really weirdly thin pages. And that thing's going to lead you into all truth. What he said is, there are many, many things I'd love to be able to tell you. You can't eat the Word like that. Your culture and your mindset will not support it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you the Spirit, and that is going to lead you into all truth. So if we follow what Jesus said, the Spirit leads us into all truth. What Jesus already said is the answer to the many things that he couldn't tell us right then. But furthermore, do you realize what the Bible actually says? What the Bible says is the foundation and pillar of all truth. The church. So do you realize most of our bylaws say that this book is our foundation and pillar of all truth. Literally, that's what most of our bylaws actually say. First Timothy actually says that the foundational pillar of all truth Why? Why is that? Because God understood that what we needed to work out, we had to work out together. We're designed to walk in community. We're designed to walk in that. So what actually happens is Jesus is the true word of God. We've established that. The spirit is what leads us into truth or deeper experience. We got that. The next thing we need to understand is tradition. Because as our journey with God evolved through the years, people question things in the Bible. People begin to point out discrepancies. You ever heard about anything like this? What I was taught to do is cut and paste the three possible Right? So when you read something, you go, wait a minute, doesn't it also say this? We always go, oh, no, it's fine. You know, slip on quickly. What actually began to happen is when people begin to study the scriptures, they begin to point out discrepancies. But because we had positioned the Bible as the judge and jury of what the Holy Spirit was allowed to do, and because we had left what Jesus, or we had looked at what Jesus had left us, not as the Spirit, not as the church, but as the Bible. What we actually had to do is we began to be Puritans and we began to be fundamentalists and we came up with this thing called nuances. And what we actually said is, if there is something in the Bible that I don't understand and seems to contradict another place in the Bible, that can't be because that means the whole thing is no good. It threatened what we felt like the Bible could be if there were things in the Bible that challenged itself. 
So rather than digging into the Bible and finding God in the midst of it, what we did is we just said, nope, that can't be. And so literally in defense of this, we established inerrancy, which meant that every single word in Scripture is perfect. Every single word in Scripture, it is like God speaking like Mork from Quark that showed up in Colorado somewhere. And that all of a sudden, this is how God spoke, that he that he took over. So, you know, all of a sudden, Paul's eyes rolled back in his head and he, and he picked up the pen like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar that he can't control what he's writing. You know, the pen flew. And so he's writing all this stuff. And that's just what happens because God just spoke. And that's what happens. Folks, do you realize that the last time we actually remembered what was in our Bible was So we were still making the Bibles. That's a long time after Jesus. That's a long time after Jesus. But now we've got everything's perfect. There's nothing that needs to be looked at differently. The, the, the idea is every word in the Bible is 100% inspired. The scripture indicates that. It teaches that. It's the story. So what we need to do is we need to look at the Bible through Jesus, not understand Jesus through the Bible. So what I mean by that is we don't use judges to interpret Jesus. We use Jesus to interpret judges. That's how it's supposed to be read. So <clears throat> let's begin with this thought. How did Jesus read the Bible? The book of Isaiah chapter 61, can you realize that, that when Paul talks about all of the scriptures pointing to Jesus and that every, every word in the Bible is inspired, we didn't have the New Testament yet. He hadn't written Corinthians yet. So somehow Paul found a way to say the last of creation was inspired and pointed to Jesus. Have you ever read Lamentations? That's the book in the Bible when you do that, the Bible a year thing that I kind of go, man, bless you, and I move on. Right? I mean, I can get through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and Lamentations is about pissing crazy off. So we'll talk about that some more. Uh, so... Isaiah chapter 61, one of my favorite verses in the whole entire Bible. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and has released the prisoners. He has released to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So this is one of the greatest uh, um, section of verses in the entire Bible. But let's begin, let's put that on the shelf for a minute, Isaiah 61, and talk about the Holy Land. Let's go use those music things in a moment. Bum, 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 bum. Lamentations. So, when you find, geographically speaking, the Holy Land, where Israel was, played a great point of significance in shaping ancient Hebrew ethics and theology. Situated between the northern and southern superpowers of ancient Near East, Israel lived under constant threat of invasion and occupation from these economic and military empires. So it was literally in one of the most vulnerable places you could be as a country. Everybody around them wanted to kill them. Everybody around them didn't want them there. So empires, when you see that, we've talked about this before, but empires are, are um, nations that are rich and powerful and believe they have a divine right So they believe they have a divine right to infringe or in, uh, impose how they view things upon others. Folks, I know where we are. We are the, we are the greatest empire that's ever been created. So the Bible is really interesting, and it becomes more interesting it, knowing how we read it. Um, the Bible gives a really sustained critique of empire from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the Gospels, and Acts, and especially Revelation, really digs into how God feels about empire. 
because empires are an enemy of God's purpose for coaching. What they claim for themselves and a manifest destiny to shape history and define God's rule over nations is the very same thing that God has promised he was going to do. The very same thing that every empire has said about itself. We have a manifest destiny to shape others and to rule is the same thing that God has said about Jesus. So, throughout Scripture, God has had issue with empires. I don't have issue with empires. God has issue with empires. So, living in the shadow of the northern and southern empires of Assyria and Babylon is in Egypt. Um, is is the thing that made Egypt, uh, or excuse me, Israel extremely vulnerable to the policies of these powerful empires. The biblical history of Israel was a long narrative of threat and oppression. From the acute sense of vulnerability, Israel developed a keen concept of neighborly justice. One of the reasons that the Old Testament talks so much about neighborly justice is because the Hebrew people so often suffered from unneighborly justice. So one reason that all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, there's always this thing where the prophets are prophesying about justice in the Old Testament is because Israel was always dealing injustice. Someone's boot was always on their neck. Constantly. There was always somebody oppressing them. And so what you find is when you're the top dog, you don't think so earnestly about justice. But if you're on the bottom, you have a much different perspective. There's a reason Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther and Dr. King Jr. are probably the two best examples of American prophets. Their prophetic edges were sharpened on the strength of slavery and segregation. When you're on the bottom, your perspective is going to look different. The Hebrew prophetic tradition developed in the crucible of enduring the threat of invasion and oppression from other heathen Gentile empires. In this framework, following the uh, invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into Judea, the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem, and the forced deportation of Jews to Babylon in 587 B.C., Isaiah of the exile penned these words. So this thing he was writing, he was writing following yet another kind of captivity and exile, another time that their country and cities and homes had been destroyed. We write it and, or excuse me, we read it and we read it as some spiritual time cycle. He was living real captivity. Yes, I believe God's going to set those who have been demonically held captive or held captive to death. He's going to cause them to be free. But what Isaiah was saying, its most literal application was surrounding him because their children were in chains. And sometimes we miss that when we just read it. Naturally, this became very clear to them. They were forced into exile into a formal, uh, foreign land, Babylon. They were the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, and the prisoners. But this poet prophet envisioned the coming year of Jubilee, of great liberation, restoration, divine favor. When that day would come that they would be free again like they were in Exodus, where they were freed from Pharaoh's um, uh, oppression. Interestingly enough, though, when you look through the Old Testament, along with the anticipation of the Jubilee of Liberation, Isaiah also prophesies that when the Lord's anointed day comes, he will exact vengeance on those who have been the oppressors. Isaiah sees divine vengeance against Gentile enemies as the apex of God's saving work. So, yes, why we believe 110% that the, the prophecy of Isaiah is applicable for now, today, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus has done that. But we have to see where it started. And we have to see where it started to understand what Jesus brought in He way. Context is important. So when Jesus read it, it was not a, a verse that meant to them something spiritual. It was a verse that especially in the moment of them because of the oppression of Roman Empire and Jews and Gentiles and Syrians clearly touched them in a new kind of way. So what you find 
did regularly, Jesus would draw from these things. So I'd like to read with you uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, I've got a, a whole bunch of those. We're probably going to skip some of them, um, to which everybody gives a glad amen. Um, but uh, uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into his home synagogue. So he's got, you know, he's got home court advantage right now, right? This is the people that know him. He knows them. And Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus begins to read. And I'd like to read that with you if you can. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. The scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He has let the oppressed go free to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everybody good so far? Did anybody notice what he dropped? So Jesus actually reads from one of the premier familiar passages of the people of Israel. This was one of their their most, the, the apex of the, the, the freedom that they believed they could have, that God was going to cause them to triumph, and God was going to come with his vengeance, and he was going to lay waste everybody who had oppressed them and opposed them. God was going to let everybody know that Israel was on top, and Jesus reads that and drops vengeance. So let me give you an example. It would be like somebody singing our national anthem and ending with, or the land of the free, and then sitting down. Everybody's going to be looking going, Abraham, right? Can you imagine how that would feel? Can you imagine how it would feel for somebody to, and you're watching, you know, uh, I won't give you, you know, let's forget about Fergie's national anthem. Uh, but but the national anthems that happened that were just magnificent, right? And you have, I think Whitney Houston is the apex of all national anthems. So Whitney Houston's standing there and she sings, oh, the land of the free, and then hands the mic back and goes and sits down. Wouldn't it feel weird? That's what happened. Jesus actually read everything up to the day of vengeance of our God. So when we look at this, we think that the reason it says the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him is because he had been prophet. What do you do when you see Jesus go preach and teach? Well, your eyes are fixed on him. The reason your eyes were fixed on him is because he had edited the Bible. with movies the last time around I saw Netflix-ray has a movie and I was thinking about this as we were um, as we're thinking you know in our culture about even our movies work and we all love remember that last time we watched uh, that's what this last weekend last night uh, Tosh was watching this movie and this guy is 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 kind of this good guy that just gets picked on by absolutely everybody absolutely everybody he's the nicest guy everybody takes advantage of him. His wife, we found out, is quite a having an affair with his best friend. His best friend's also a cop. He's getting ready to fire him. They decide to put him, he's going to be the fall guy uh, um, when the federal investigation happens, so he's going to go to prison. He's never done anything wrong, all this kind of stuff. Then they, then his boss decides that he's going to put a hit out on him because the company needs money, and he's, in, he's down in Mexico, and they decide that uh, if he's killed while he's on a business trip, they get $10 million. So, literally, he's, he is like, can't do anything right. And he's talking to his friend, and they, the guy says, everybody loves an underdog. Isn't that how we are? We do. We just like, there's something about that. It's the reason, you know, uh, I've used this example before, but it's the reason in Rudy that we all, you know, when he finally takes the field at the end of the movie, I still get weepy. 
right? When they lay the jerseys on the coaches, goes, Rudy can have my spot, coach. I know they're losing, you know. I'm just losing it. Why? Because everybody loves an underdog. People do. So we, but we don't just want an underdog. In fact, at the end of the movie that Tosh watched last night, I, I came in and was watching the end with her, and one of the people didn't get it. Meaning, so there were two people who were bad. One of them went to prison, but one of them flipped on that one, so they got everything. They got protection. They didn't get any justice. It bothered me. I didn't realize how much it had bothered me because I thought, no, she's a bad person. She was just as much to blame, and she's coming out smelling like a rose. Why? Because we all like to hate. So what Jesus came to say is, guess what? I'm editing this incredible prophecy to remove vengeance. Jesus is announcing the day of the favor of God. And he edits Isaiah in announcing the year of Jubilee, the liberation, amnesty, pardon that was arriving with what he was doing. Because what does he say? Today, this is fulfilled in your ears. What does he actually say? He takes out vengeance and then he says, now it's right. So he actually is saying, he doesn't just edit it. Then he he says, when they ask him, what are you doing? He says, wait a minute. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Now it's right. So he does this incredible thing, and he Jesus begins to claim to actually be the year of Jubilee in person. He was walking Jubilee to Israel, and he was the one that edited out vision, uh, excuse me, vengeance, and this gives us the key on how to read Jesus in the Old Testament. Unless we think that Jesus' omission of the day of vengeance was simply an oversight or meaningless, consider what Jesus says to the hometown crowd in the synagogue following his There were many widows in the time of Elijah when all the heavens were shut up three years and six months. There was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of the people of God, Israel. He was sent to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. Hmm. There were also many lepers in the time of Israel and the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except for who? Naaman. Let me just be really clear. So Jesus is saying to all the people of Israel, who their whole, those, they knew their story, but they were kind of the lesser told story. That wasn't really what they usually rallied around. So what Jesus says is, oh, wait a minute. This is how God has always done it. Because he takes out the day of vengeance. Then when they question him, he says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not changing God. You just had it wrong. And what he says is, you had it wrong all along. Don't you remember that in the day of Elijah, that there were many widows and many people suffering in the famine, yet God sent Elijah to the widow Zarephath at Sidon. And then he says, and if that's not enough, everybody's kind of grumbling, you know, yeah, you're right, God did that too, right? You know, everybody's getting fired up. And then he says, as if that's not enough, guess what? Remember that time? was sent to heal the deed of the eye that was blind and affecting the eyes. I don't think we have language for how uh, radical that is. Because Jesus actually said, this wasn't just like their enemy, kind of like, well, you know, it's like Husky Kansas. They're there, you know, we know we're better than them. We need to be pushing around for a vengeance, except for those like runners who like can't see that they're up there. Uh, But, you know, no, we're talking it would have been, oh, like the Jews and Hitler. vengeance 
refused to read Isaiah's vision of vengeance in his synagogue, just as he would refuse to be violent and a vengeful Messiah in the model of King David and Judah Maccabee. And that ignited the rage of the crowd. It's amazing how angry some people can be if you try to take away their religion or their faith. You want to know how angry they got? Read the rest of it. They took him out and tried to throw him off a cliff. All he did was say God's never been into revenge. And they became so enraged, they killed him. It's amazing to see this. As long as Jesus announced that the time of God's favor was there, the crowd was well. They were good. They were with him. As long as they begin to say that this is the year of Jubilee, this is the time when God's going to liberate us, and we're no longer the captives of the land, everybody was cheering them on. But as soon as he said, God's not going to come and destroy Rome. They said, whoa, Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit that Jesus actually says is with us is called the spirit of advocacy. The Holy Spirit is the advocate. What does that do? Brings clarity. That was the point. So what you find last week is within this community that Jesus actually calls us to stand together on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Because remember what we said from the very beginning, the way we should read the Bible, the way we should always read the Bible is through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of God as goodness. His, God's defined as one thing. God is love. It is his essence. And let me remind you that the word essence means trust nothing being, which is the essence of who somebody is, not the attributes of what they do, but the essence of who they are. The essence of God is love plus nothing. It's not love plus righteousness. It's not love plus truth. It's not love plus wrath. It's not love plus vengeance. And I'm sick and tired of the church having this weird yin and yang thing with love and wrath of God, where they feel like God is love, but he's also angry, and that balances out his love. God is unbalanced, and it always leans into love. He doesn't need balance. There is no yin to his yang. It doesn't work that way. It's not that he needs to be this guy, and he's too fruity. So we balance him out a little bit with this yin guy that's willing to have a fight. When you punch God, he punches back twice as hard, but he tells you he loves you while he's doing it. Seriously? God is the guy on the, ten, on, the, on the playground that's not beating up the bully. God is the guy on the playground that is taking the punches for the oppressed. And if that makes you feel like you serve a less powerful God, then you've not felt what his love and grace actually is. Next week, uh, Garrett Andrews is going to be sharing. Uh, just as a reminder, we are not having church services. No services from uh, Thursday. Um, Tosh and I will be in Tampa. We're going to be speaking at Pastor Rebecca's church. Uh, they're having a conference there, and then we have a fantastic evening and then worship. But next Sunday, um, Garrett Andrews is going to be here, and he's going to be speaking about um, scapegoating. So I'm not going to go into that. I have a little bit of that about next Sunday, but we'll kind of let him discuss that. Um, because essentially that's what happens. People, I'll just say this, people then when they find the way they change something as threatened, they join together and they feel a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense of resolve by having a common enemy to attack. That's what happened to Jesus. Jesus was the scapegoat. He wasn't the scapegoat meaning meaning he carried our sin. I'm not saying that didn't happen. He was the scapegoat because he was the thing that they could project all of their anger and wrath and unrighteousness upon. And that's how they could look at Jesus and say he was speaking on behalf.
sacred to God. That's what we do. So I'd like to end with this. Plato, not the kind of putty stuff you play with when you're a kid, but the philosopher. Plato um, existed years and years and years and years and years. And um, Plato, while there are, are many things, and we've talked about some of the stuff that he said here that I'm not going to preach on this morning, he had a, maybe a negative effect on uh, modernism and the way that we have we have operated as Western society. I, I think that there are some credible things that, that Plato would cite. Um, during the day of Plato, which was before Jesus, okay, we've got a chronological and historical preview here, that um, he was in Greece, and there was um, a very common book, um, in fact, two books, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, both written by Homer. Um, some of you are familiar with them. They're still very popular today. But the Iliad was essentially the book of war. Um, and he, in it, and in, in the Odyssey, Homer defines the gods as angry, capricious. Um, they, they were always vengeful. Um, they were manipulative. They would set people up to be killed. They would set people up to encounter difficulty. And, and you were always trying to make sure that they were appeased in some way. So it began to be, that began to be integrated into Greek culture and how we taught their kids about those things. So Plato sees this. Keep in mind, Plato's not a Christian. Plato's more than likely not, doesn't even believe in God. I mean, that's been questioned before. There's um, some stuff where maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But Plato says, if there is a God who's not like this God, we're teaching our children that the gods are angry, angry, capricious, wrathful, vengeful, manipulative, always looking to, 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 to just mess with us. And he said, that's unhealthy. And so what he began to say is, if there is a God, he's always good. So he began to write about this. There was a rabbi at the time who was in the Church of Alexandria in Egypt. This rabbi um, heard this, and this rabbi, actually, his name was Pileo, Philo, um, he began to read this and said, yes, this is a God who got it. So what the Jewish people began to do is they actually instituted something where the way you had to read the scriptures, you had to start with a pre-commitment that God was always good. So this rabbi enforced a rule to all of his students and said, if before you pick up the Bible to read from it, you have to start with a pre-commitment to God's goodness. Then you read the Bible. And you don't throw out the passages that might depict God as all bad. You read goodness into it. You read it as allegorical. You find ways to see God in it. And so what began to happen is this became very common. And, and the thing that I found to be the most fascinating is this is how all the early church fathers read the Bible. They actually read it. St. John of Mantua actually said, if you don't read the Bible through the lens of God is good and God as Christ revealed in Christ, it's heresy. 400, 400 early church fathers all committed to this, that this is how they were going to teach, teach the church previous or, or prior to uh, um, uh, the Council of Nicaea. This is how they had to respond back in the last century. The church has been doing it for the last, for about the last two and a half hours, I've been reading about the church council and reading all the, the conferences and things like that. But after the Council of Nicaea, everything had changed. But up to that point and around 330, everybody read the Bible. There was a commitment of the entire church to read the Bible with a, with a specific lens. God is good and God is revealed in Christ. So when Jesus picked up the Bible, says is the fulfillment of done right in God's second coming. God doesn't come back and avenge. God comes to rescue. That's the God we have. And this is the way that Jesus read the Bible. This is the way Jesus taught us to see God. This is the way how the early church operated. And again, this is how Paul saw God when Paul took something that wasn't even in the Bible faithfully and said this is what God said. This is how God operates. Isn't it good when God
good to us. You love us so much. And we declare the fulfillment of this wonderful passage that you just read from Isaiah 61. We declare that the spirit of the Lord is upon us. It is upon this hour. It's upon humankind and all of creation. And that what it is doing is anointing and bringing good news to the poor. It's proclaiming the release of captives and recovery of sight to those that are blind. It is breaking both natural and spiritual bonds that hold people down. To those who are physically oppressed in some way, you bring freedom. And to those who are emotionally or spiritually oppressed, you bring freedom. You have always been a God that is on behalf of the oppressed. And so we say thank you for this. We say thank you that this is the year of the favor of the Lord. And in the midst of that, this is being fulfilled in our midst. We thank you that this is the prophecy of Isaiah. We thank you that this is the prophecy that was endorsed by our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that in that vein, we can know that you are good. You have always been good. You will always be good. And you have always been how Jesus was. And we just break off any mindset, any preconceived idea that views you differently than Jesus was. You are beautiful. You are holy. And we thank you that we get to live in that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.